Speaking of prayer, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to wrap up our series in Philippians. Father, we love you. We bless you. We worship you. We honor you today. Father, thank you so much that we get to gather as a people. Jesus, thank you that through your death and through your resurrection, you birthed your church into the earth. And Father, we thank you that that church is not just uh, an ambiguous idea in your heart and in your mind. It is a very specific thing. It is a very tangible reality. It is your people, the expression of your life and your love and your heart planted into the earth to continue the work of your kingdom, the proclamation of your gospel, and your heart being disseminated into the earth through your church. And so, Father, today we pray that by the power of your spirit, that through the teaching and the preaching and the proclamation of the word, through the gospel being announced, through the table of the Lord, we ask, God, that you would shape us and form us into the image of Jesus, that you would encourage those in this house that are in need of encouragement, you would strengthen each and every one of us in our faith journey with the living God, that you would make our witness vibrant and bright. You would heal bodies and relationships and minds and emotions that are hurt and broken. And that your spirit, O oh God, would permeate every aspect of this house in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I heard such incredible reports uh, from the services when we were out. The Kingdom's Feet Dance Camp was an amazing hit, so I heard. And I heard that, I heard that service was a little rowdy. You can thank my wife for that. Uh, but I heard it was rowdy in the best way possible. And then uh, Sidron spoke on Philippians chapter 4 on do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present our request to God. So he did a marvelous job unpacking how to live lives of peace and joy and victory in the midst of opposition and persecution. Uh, I didn't get to hear Pastor Dan's message because we, we actually didn't capture that message on audio. However, he sent me uh, his extensive notes, so I read over those notes and uh, did a phenomenal job, I am sure, on helping us understand the spirit of koinonia and partnership, particularly as it relates to giving. And so today what I'm going to do is I've got something real particular on my heart that I want to get into. Um, Philippians has been an amazing journey for me personally. And uh, I think that I'm actually going to just stay in the book of Philippians for a while because the Lord is just speaking so many things to me and really doing a lot inside of me. But what I want to do today is I want to talk about something very specific, and it goes along the lines of what Dan introduced two weeks ago. I want to talk for a few minutes about becoming a koinonia community. Becoming a koinonia community. That's just dressing it up really nice. You could also dress that down and, uh, and you could, for yourselves personally, for your notes, you could title this, How to Be a Good Friend. So, you, however you want to process this, we can process this on the corporate level, we could also process on the personal level, but Philippians has a lot to say about what it means to be a people and how to live as a people who walk in the koinonia love and relationship of Jesus. Now, I... I typically don't do this, or at least I haven't done this in this series, but uh, our points are going to be a little cheesy, all right? So just bear with me. I've got three really 
cheesy points for you guys, okay? And here they are. I'm just going to give them to you up front. So you can laugh. You can laugh at me. You can laugh at the points. Get it all out of your system. And then we'll just go, okay? So here's how we're going to learn how to be a Koinonia community or how to be a good friend. All right, here we go. Write this down. Care, prayer, and share. Okay, there it is. Care, prayer, and share. All right, Philippians chapter 1. Here we go. If we could put verses 3 through 5 on the screen, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to talk about what it means to care for one another. Caring for one another deeply. That's what it means to belong to a people, is that we learn how not to just care about ourselves, which is intuitive, which is intuitive, which is natural. What is counterintuitive and what is supernatural is that when we are rooted into a people, that could be a marriage, that could be a family, that could be a friendship, that could be a group of brotherhood or sisterhood, that could be a business community, that could be a neighborhood, but it's just learning how as followers of Jesus, how to care about something and someone and some people other than ourselves. Now, I know this is going to feel very elementary today, but I promise you, I promise you, I'm learning more and more just going through the scriptures that the highest metric of spirituality is the way that we treat one another. And this is just wrecking me, so I'm just giving to you out of the overflow of some of the things that God is doing some surgery in my own life. Look at verse 3. This is Paul. He said, I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, we've done a more didactic or a more teaching, a more exegetical, instructional approach to the book. Today, what I want to do is I want to get into, on a very intimate and a very heart level, on some of these things. Because if we're not careful, we'll just walk away and say, yeah, you know, it's really cool that we, we talked about the historical background of the Church of Philippi. We talked about some of the key theological themes. We, we talked about how we break down these words. And we could totally miss the heart of what's happening here. Now, we've explained this multiple times that Paul had a very special relationship with the church at Philippi. And I think that there's actually secrets and there's keys that are here in this book that help us have an understanding of why his relationship with his church was so special. Now, this is what he says. I thank my God every time I remember you. Let's just stop. Let's just stop here for a second and think about the fact that he actually took time to express this to these people. Let's just stop and evaluate our own lives and let's think about how often we share our affection with the people that God has put in our lives. Our spouses, our children, our friends, the mentors, the leaders, the supervisors that were instrumental in coordinating and engineering certain paths for us in our career, the neighbor that helped us in our time of need, the pastor, the minister, the youth minister, the dance instructor, the coach. Just let's stop on a very practical level and let's acknowledge that Paul took the time to express, man, you guys, I think about you and I think about you often. And when I think about you, I, I have such joy in my heart every time I think of you. Look at verse four. In all of my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
When's the last time you heard someone say that to you? When's the last time you heard someone say, man, when I think of you and when I pray for you, my heart is just flooded with joy. See, I don't think that's intuitive for whatever reason. Maybe it's because we're inundated with information, maybe because of the frenetic pace of life in Western culture. I don't, I don't know what all the root structures of that are. What I do know is that if we take time to do simple practices in our lives, I believe they would have the power to transform our relationships on a cellular level and on a macro level both. Every time I think of you, my heart is filled with joy. My youngest son, Israel, I'm not sure what's going on in that three-year-old little heart and brain of his, but he's gotten into this habit and it's not been long. It's probably been just the past week or two where he, he will start going through and he'll start telling people that he's, that they're not his friend anymore. You're not my friend. Kingston, you're not my friend anymore. Kenya, you're not my friend. And he'll just start going. And, we'll, and so at first we just thought, oh, that's odd. And then probably about day two or three, we said, well, we need to lean in on this a little bit and help disciple him and, and pastor him and parent him through this. So we were in Costco the other day and, and he pulled this. And, you know, the thing that I love about this age and the thing I love about Costco baskets is my twin boys can both sit right there. And there's coming a day when that's not going to happen anymore. So I'm just relishing the fact that my twin boys can both sit in the same cart. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And here he is right next to Kingston. We're going down the aisle and he goes, you're not my friend. And so Christy begins parenting him through this. And, and I just kind of chime in. I say, you know what, Israel, as the Duncans, we're going to be encouragers. We're going to be people where the life of God comes out of our mouths. We're going to be people that express to others how grateful that we are that God has put them in our lives. So, so Israel, I want you to say to Kingston, Kingston, you're my friend, and I encourage you. And so he does that. He says, Kingston, you're my friend. And Kingston goes, well, you're my friend. And he says, no, 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 you're my friend. No, you're my friend. And I'm like, look at that. We just created a vortex of friendship right there. No, it sounds real elementary and it sounds real silly, but I'm telling you, if we will learn how to sow life and appreciation and gratitude with our words to others, you will be amazed at the ecosystem the ecosystem, the environment that you create relationally in the key lives that God has put into your life. And here's what we have to understand, you guys, that there are actually people that are assigned by God to be in your relational circumference. I'll say it this another way. There are people that God has assigned to you to be your friend and for you to be their friend. He has assigned them to you. You can read this on your own, but in John chapter 17, in the first 10 verses of John chapter 17, and primarily in the first four verses, Jesus is actually giving an account. He's held accountable before God for the disciples. And I think if we're not careful, we'll, we'll read the scriptures and we'll read the gospels from solely a functional or a pragmatic lens. We'll read the Gospels and we'll read the Scriptures and, and we'll interpret everything as, as how, to, how to grow our business 
or how to grow a church or how to be a better leader or how to, how to, how to, you know, all the, all the how to's that inundate our culture. Jesus was establishing a relational foundation with these guys for the purpose of bringing them into friendship. Friendship. And this is the secret that we see in Jesus' life. When he stands before God, the Father, at the end of his life, because John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is about to be crucified in a matter of days. He knows this. And what he does with the Father is he says, I am giving you an account This is how I treated the people that you gave me. You gave me these men. Listen to the language. There were some people in this room that God has given to me. And I'm responsible for those friendships and those relationships. I'm responsible and you are responsible. I don't know if you guys know this story. But it's it's one of the dearest stories in my heart. And I think it'd be powerful to share this story with you guys because, you know, sometimes I think people see the relationship, the special, special relationship that I have with these staff members, Martha, David, the Swindles, the Andersons. And if we're not careful, it's really easy to assume, oh, well, Pastor Jay's just playing favorites and he just has his little circle and and no one else is allowed into that. First of all, that is not true. Second of all, there is relational history with some of these people that involves a lot of pain, but it also involves so many sweet things. And I have just, by the grace of God, discerned some of the key people that God has put in my life. They, have, they are gifts from God. I don't know how I developed this. Maybe I read it out of a book or maybe it was just through some goodness of the Lord. But I began a practice years ago of taking my journal and writing down on a yearly basis, usually around my birthday, because that's when I get very introspective and reflective around these kinds of things. I just write down a list of all the key people that God has put into my life in that previous year. There are some people, it's, it's interesting, there are some people's names on there that I end up crossing off for whatever reason. Whether life and time just allowed us to drift apart, maybe there was some relational rift that was, uh, for whatever reason, unable to become repaired. There were some relationships that got stronger. Most of those relationships got stronger. And then there were, there were new people. And I always take note of, Lord, who are the new people that you brought into my life for me to be a steward of these relationships? Dan and I met in 2002. I was training missionary leaders in Juarez, Mexico. Dan was one of those missionary leaders. He was uh, a part of leading a team to Vancouver, And he and I were both on a work project trimming trees there at the orphanage. And once we realized that both of us shared the commonality of being half Anglo, half Korean, I mean, anybody who's Korean, you have an automatic connection. I mean, we've got separate refrigerators, we've got wooden spoons, we've got taken off shoes, we've got kimchi, we've got piano, we've got taekwondo, we've got got all the little nuances that, that, that are shared in having a Korean mom. And, and, and a white dad. And it's crazy because my dad was an officer in the army. Dan's dad was an officer in the army. My dad grew up in rural Arkansas. His dad grew up in rural Alabama. It was nuts. We just started trading all these similarities. And our hearts just got knitted together. Probably on a very soulish level at first. But then, but then Dan, we were going to the same university. And he decided to come and help out at our youth ministry that Christy and I were part of pastoring at that time. 
He served faithfully for about five or six months. And at the summer, Dan had an opportunity to go be an assistant youth pastor at a very large youth ministry up in Washington. And so, man, we talked through that process, prayed through that process, and cried many, many tears as he was driving out of town. I'll never forget his little black Jetta driving out of Tulsa after we shared breakfast that day before he took off. That was in 2002. 2004, Christy and I moved here. We left Tulsa, moved here. This was pre-Facebook. This was pre-smartphones. And and Dan and I lost touch. October of 2004, Christy and I were at a leadership conference in in, in Atlanta. And I just pulled out my, my journal and I began taking inventory again. And I wrote down Dan's name. And I prayed this prayer. I said, Lord, I don't know how to get in touch with Dan. He switched email addresses. And I just said, Lord... I feel like that was a special relationship you put in my life. And would you reconnect me to this guy? Christy and I, the year prior to moving out to Colorado Springs, were not only associate pastors and youth pastors and college pastors, but we were also children's pastors. And as part of the children's pastors, we created this outreach on Halloween night that became a really big hit. And the church continued it. So we asked for permission to go back to Tulsa to just be encouragement and support for that outreach that they were doing. And so we did. We went and we were going to do a 24-hour trip. We drove into Tulsa. We were right as the outreach started. We were part of serving the community. And then we were going to turn around the next morning and drive back to Colorado. Springs. Well, unbeknownst to us, there was a massive snowstorm that was going through Kansas and I-70 was shut down. And so we called back in uh, to one of the pastors that we were reporting to and said, hey, there's a massive snowstorm. They said, hey, don't worry about it. Stay there, be safe and come back when you can. So we went across the street to one of our favorite coffee shops that just sits right uh, across the street from the university. And uh, we said, well, if we're here, we might as well grab some coffee and make a day out of it. We walk into the coffee shop. Now, here's the other side of the story. That same morning, unbeknownst to us, Dan had moved back from Washington to Tulsa. That same morning, unbeknownst to us, Dan prayed a prayer. And that prayer was, Lord, I believe you put Jay Duncan in my life for a very special reason, and we've lost touch. Would you reconnect us? That same morning. We walk into the coffee shop, and lo and behold, there's Dan. And uh, it, I'm telling you, it was just one of these sovereign, crazy, special, heartfelt things. And uh, long story short, Dan moved out here in January of 2006 and, uh, and worked three jobs at times so he could serve and volunteer in the youth ministry and, uh, and, and, and just said, I am committed to us fulfilling our dream of pastoring and planning churches together for the rest of our lives. And so now 15 years later, Dan... Man. Sure do love you, man. It's real special. So here's Paul. And, and, and Paul has no problem sharing vocally and verbally with these people in his life how much they mean to him. I think it'd be a really powerful exercise for us, not only on the heels of this message, but just to weave into our lives the practice of verbally and literally sharing with people the gift they are in our lives. I'm telling you guys, it's transformative. Here's what Paul says in verse 8. Paul says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's beautiful. 
These guys were fathers and they longed for the people that they led and birthed into the Christian faith with the love of a father and a mother. And here's Paul. He's saying, guys, when I'm, when I'm not away from, when I'm away from you, I long for you. I miss you. I miss you. I miss your face. I miss who you are in Christ. And, and even in the natural, don't make this thing so spiritual. I miss you. I miss laughing together. I miss breaking bread together. I miss eating meals together. I miss sitting around the fire together. I miss drinking drinks together. I miss just everything that's involved in who you are in my life. You occupy a special place in my heart. When's the last time you shared that with someone? And then he umps the ante and he says, the same affection that Jesus has for you guys, I have that affection for you. Now that's a bold statement. Because I read that and I say, I'm not at the place where I can say that yet. Maybe when I'm, you know, walking with this group of people for 40 years and I can look back and I can say, guys, I just long for you with the affection of Jesus. Maybe because he's in prison and he knows a lot. I don't know what, what, but I just know that I can't say that yet. But I, here's what I've been doing. I've been saying, God, whatever, whatever Paul had, whatever he had, whatever revelation this guy had, Whatever got inside of him for these people, whatever deep love that he was experiencing, that he could say the same affection that Jesus has for you, I have that same affection for you. I said, God, I'm not there, but I want that. I want that. And that's a dangerous prayer. That is a dangerous prayer. But it is the right prayer. Because because when you start experiencing the affection of God for people, it will change you. And, and, and you, you will open yourself up to being hurt in a, in, a, in a very unique way, but you willingly engage in that because you're willing to experience the suffering of Jesus for the people that he loves. All right, care. So, so when we talk about building a koinonia community and becoming a good friend, very simply it means that we're willing to share our affection with one another. And if you're sitting here today and you're saying, I feel disconnected and I feel rejected and I, I go from church to church and I, and I never feel like I'm in the in crowd and no one's friends with me. And well, listen, I, I empathize with that. But I also want to present to you this thought. When's the last time you've allowed yourself to invest enough in another person? And when's the last time you have articulated in some form your affection for another person? And if you will develop that, I promise you, at the end of your life, you will look back and you will be rich with friendships. You will be rich. The second aspect of this this point of, of care is just the idea of being thoughtful. It's the idea of being thoughtful. You know, I think thoughtfulness should be the sixth love language. And there's touch, there's service, there's time, there's gifts, there's words, and all those are great. But, but really, I think all of those love languages, they flow out of a heart of thoughtfulness. Now, let's look at some verses here in Philippians 2. Some of these verses are verses that we've read over the course of, of us studying the book. But now let us, let's, let's, let's assimilate the book. Let's incarnate this. Let's feel the book. Philippians 2, verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. You know, you know, basically I could say this. 
The key to having great friendships and marriages and, re- and, and family and relationship and business partnerships, the key to that is that by the grace of partnering with God, you learn, actually, and it's not even, you are transformed whereby you are no longer living a selfish life. Selfishness is, it, it is murder to relationships. It's just murder. We could, we could, pre, we could prevent a lot of divorces in our premarital and marital counseling if we could just get both parties to bring their selfishness to the cross of Jesus and say, Jesus, by your death, would you literally obliterate and crucify the selfishness inside of me and transform me so that what is most intuitive is not make me a sandwich. So that what is most intuitive is not this. I came home from a tie. I'm tired. Or this, this, is, this is the show that I want to watch. Or this is the way that I like things done. Or this is what I need. But if we could allow Jesus to transform us, to say, what do you need, sweetie? And what do you want right now? And what are you going through? And what is God doing in your heart? And how can I surround you? And how can I serve you? And how can I be a blessing to you? I'm going to tell all you guys who aren't married right now, listen, if you want a great marriage... You do that right there. I promise you. I promise you. You'll have a great marriage. You teach, your ki- you teach your kids to live that way. You have a solid family. So here he goes on. He says, but instead of just living life from your own lens. This is the next verse. He says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Value them above yourselves. This is the next verse that I think is really powerful. He says, do not look only to your own interests, but each of you should look also to the interests of others. And when I I really just allow that to sit inside of me, what that means is that I've got to slow down. I have to slow my life down. I've got to cut some things out of my life so I have time to be thoughtful. Because the busier life gets, the more selfish I get. That's just the truth of the matter. The more I fill my life with just activity, and it could be good activity, the less time that I have to hear the Holy Spirit to be thoughtful about the people that God has placed me in relationship with. When's the last time you sat down? And you didn't turn the television on. You didn't pull your smartphone out. You didn't, you didn't get absorbed into those other worlds. When was the last time you sat in a chair and you said, Holy Spirit, would you put somebody on my heart and my mind that I need to encourage or bless and serve and give to in a unique way that they specifically need right there, right now in their lives? When was the last time? Don't, don't raise your hands and don't tell me, but it's rhetorical. But think about this. Think, what if we created a rhythm? You know, that's what Sabbath lifestyle is all about. Sabbath lifestyle is, is a gift from God that, that allows us to slow down so we can hear. 
And so that we can live more thoughtfully. And we can live more intentionally. And we can live from the heart. Not by the drivenness of our society. And so here's a great exercise. Find some time this week. And, and, and maybe it's driving. Maybe you have a long commute. And maybe in that time, shut, shut everything down. And on your long commute, say, Lord, I'm, I'm open. Give me ears to hear and put inside of my heart somebody that I'm connected to relationally that needs, that just, that needs something. And then, and then let's up the ante. Pay attention. Husbands, if you want a great, a great marriage with your spouse, pay attention. Pay attention. I, I, I'm kind of of the persuasion that in the marital relationship, we ought to know what each other's favorites are. We ought to know, we ought to know each other's drink orders. We ought to know the way they, they like their eggs cooked. We ought, to, we ought to just know those kinds of things. Thoughtfulness, it looks like when you're coming home from, from work, and, 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 and you're stopping by the coffee shop, you text your spouse and you say, hey, is there something that you would like? I'm, I'm, I'm at a coffee shop. Would you want me to pick you up something? Thoughtfulness, just listen, thoughtfulness looks like paying attention. Paying attention. Thoughtfulness looks like being able to, to forecast things in, in your relational zone. Thoughtfulness looks like you really deeply empathizing with what they're going through. Thoughtfulness means that if they're excited about something and you're not, that you learn to become excited about what they're excited about. That's, what th- that's called koinonia. We're going to get there when we get to share. But that, that, listen, all these things, we don't, have to, we don't have to super spiritualize this, you guys. Some of us stink at relationships because we're choosing hyper-spirituality instead of thoughtfulness. This is what he says here in Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 19. So, so Paul is separated from this, this band of believers that he apparently loves very deeply. And then this is what he says. Verse 19. Chapter 2 verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. God, listen to this. He's so in it. He says, I have no one else like Timothy who will show genuine concern for your welfare. What is that? It's thoughtfulness. It's learning how to think about what is important. It's learning how to immerse yourself. What would life be like for me if I just got out of surgery and and, and I had to cook all my meals? Do you know why we do things like share a meal? Because it teaches us to be thoughtful. And if you've ever gone through something difficult in your life, when you need the help of others, when you need the fruit and the benefit of life together in community, if you've ever been in a situation like that, it'll help you reprogram your thoughts on what it means to really empathize with what others are going through. And that's what Paul's talking about right here. Look at verse 21. He says, everyone looks out for their own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. I mean, he just gets it. He gets people. Okay, let's, let's take another, let's, let's, let's move on. Uh, the next aspect of what it means to care for others really involves our spiritual growth and maturity. Look at Philippians chapter 2 
And look at verse 12. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to do a little work here to connect these dots, but hopefully we can make this happen. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed. Now, let's just stop right there. When you read the scriptures and anytime you see therefore, you really, you really had to stop. And instead of just blowing by that and reading on, you actually need to go back and reread what you just read. Do you understand what I just said? Because if that, that little conjunction, therefore, therefore, what he's saying is everything that I just said to you is connected to everything that I'm about to say. So in chapter 2, we just read this. The context, what is the context of the first 11 verses of chapter 2? It's all relationship. It's all koinonia. It's all shared life. It's all living in unity. It's all experiencing the life of God in the context of relational community. That's the context. So we, we can't then start ripping things out, especially when Paul puts a word like therefore in there. What he's saying is the context here continues. Are we together on this? All right. So now he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I've always read that verse, and I have assumed the responsibility from that verse that this is all about me, and it's all about Jesus, and it's all about my work, and it's all about my spiritual discipline, and it's all up to me to work out my salvation, and I've got to do that with fear and trembling. That's the verse right there. What I did not do, and I never connected the first 11 verses to that verse right there. So if we do that, here's what we, here's what we can say. That it is in the context of koinonia that we learn how to work out our salvation. Working out your salvation is not about how long you can pray in the prayer closet. That's not what working out your salvation is in the context of Philippians. Working out your salvation is not about how much scripture you can consume and quote and preach and prophesy and pray in the context of Philippians chapter 2. Working out your salvation in the context of Philippians 2 is how do we live by the supernatural power of God where we actually think about others more than we think about ourselves. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling means are you willing to show affection? Are you willing to pray? Are you willing to share? That's what he's talking about when he says work out your salvation. You know, when you come home and you're tired and the house is a wreck and it's a disaster zone and you realize, you know, instead of, instead of pulling any kind of card, when you choose by the grace of God to go low and clean and cook, you know, you know what you're doing? You're working out your salvation. You know, when somebody disappoints you that you're in relationship with and you want to hold on to that offense and nurse it, but instead you choose first to go to God and forgive, second, to get his heart for that person, third, to engage in honest communication so that you can reconcile the relationship, you know what you're doing? You're working out your salvation. You are working out your salvation. 
You know when life is just jam-packed for you, and there's someone that you know that you're in connection with, and they need something, and you choose to rearrange your life so you can be present to move them? Got a couple of moves that are coming up this week. Or when you're present just to, just to be with them, and nothing's being produced, maybe, you're just, maybe you just cut out time to listen instead of just dominating the conversation with talking. You know what you're doing? You're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. All right, let's move on. Care, prayer. This is going to be very, very fun. It's going to be very simple. Philippians chapter 1. Are we all still together today? Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers for all of you. Let's skip down to verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Let's look at another verse here in verse 19. Verse 19 of chapter 1. Paul says, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. All right, let's, a couple of quick thoughts here on prayer. Number one, prayer for the people that God has put in our lives should be something that we engage in frequently. Frequently. Years ago, when we preached a message here called Tending Your Garden, we talked about identifying the, the zones of people that are in our lives and creating a strategy or a habit or a discipline by which we pray into our garden. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that in my private time with God, I'm not just sharing with God. It's not just about me and God. That's what he's saying. He's saying in my private devotional life with God, I am not just sharing with him all the things that I want or all the things that I need or all the craziness that's going on in my life that I need reprieve from. He is saying that in my relational history with God, I have developed bandwidth to include others. Now, here's what I'd like to propose. I'd like to propose that if we would adopt this in our lives, that it actually has magnificent power to develop our spiritual maturity. Perhaps in greater ways than just praying for the things that we need in our lives. I'd take it a step further and I'd say, identify the things that you most need in your life and then ask God, who is somebody else that I know who needs what I need equally? And I'm going to pray for them instead of praying for me. And watch what happens. Watch what happens. You need breakthrough in your job? Go to life group. Find someone who needs breakthrough in their job. Pray for them. You need healing? Find someone who needs healing. Pray for them. You need encouragement? Find someone who needs encouragement. Pray for them. And build that bandwidth and create a system whereby you do it often. Here's the next thing that we, we see here in prayer. Not only pray frequently, pray faithfully. Pray faithfully. Faithful to the scriptures. One of the, my favorite things to do as I pray for you is I actually would just pray the word right over your life. This Philippians 1, 9 through 11, you guys have had that prayed over you so many times, it's not even funny. In fact, by now, your love should be abounding so much more and more in knowledge and depth of insight because I pray this apostolic prayer for you all the time. Pray faithfully means faithful to the scripture, faithful to the will of God. 
Don't just pray your emotional, don't, don't just pray manipulative prayers. Don't pray what you think. People Pray faithful to what God wants to have happen in the lives of the friends and the community that you're connected with. Now, let me pastor you here for a second. Look at verse 19 again. This is the one that I need help in. We have to be willing not only to, to pray for others, we have to be willing, if we're going to really walk in koinonia, we've got to be willing to share our lives so that others can pray for us. I need help in this. I've gone through some things in my life, and I've had, many of you guys know Pastor Scott, been a spiritual father in my life for 25 years. I went through a pretty difficult season at one point, and he reached out and he said, hey, I found out from so-and-so, you're going through a hard time. And then he rebuked me. He said, first he goes, is this true? I was like, yes. Then he rebuked me. Why didn't you tell me? There's still some orphanhood inside of me that's being worked out. There's still something inside of me that wants to be self-sufficient and wants to be independent and self-reliant. That's in me. I don't want to tell everybody when I need help. I I just want to just gut it out with me and God. And you know what? That's immaturity. That's immaturity in me. Independence. And self-reliance, and I don't need you. I'll be there for you. I can help you because that means I'm strong and you're weak. But in order for me to come to you and say, help me, that, in some regards, takes more spiritual maturity than being the strong one in your life. So pray for me. (laughs) When's the last time... In the right spirit, now listen, I know that we can be abusive with this, and I know that, I know, I know that we can you know, tip over into a place of our lives where, where we're trusting in people more than we're trusting in God, and, and, and where um, we're looking to other people for our strength and instead of for God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking in a very healthy, koinonia life, going to the people that God has put in your life and saying, These, would you partner with me in these things? I'm not looking for you to answer them. I'm not looking to bellyache. I'm not looking to slander or complain. I just need some strength from heaven. And would you partner with me? Are you here today? All right, last, last point. What's our first point? Care. What's our first point? Second point? Prayer. Here's our third one. Share. Dan did a masterful job talking with us about the definition of koinonia. I'm going to read one of the definitions that that he pulled from uh, the NIV Life Application Commentary in 1 John. It defines koinonia as this. Christian community is not some passing association of people who just share common sympathies. All right, so when we say koinonia, we're not just saying that we all kind of generally agree on, on important things. That's not koinonia. It also says it's not an academy where intellectual consensus about God is discovered. So koinonia is also not about the fact that we just all believe the same things about the scriptures. That's not koinonia. Okay? This is what he says. It cannot be this superficial. Christian community is partnership in experience. Here's the the literal words for koinonia. It means association. It means participation. To participate. It means communion. So actually when we, when we come and we experience communion at the table on a weekly basis, it's, it's just a tangible picture of a prophetic and a spiritual reality. That God, we don't want to just believe the right things about you. That we don't want to just read about you. We want to enter into shared life with you. 
Every single one of you, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within, you are in koinonia with God. You are in shared life with God. Which means that God enters into your suffering. When Jesus went to the cross, he koinonia'd with our suffering. He koinonia'd with our pain. He koinonia'd with our disappointment. He says, I'm going to share this with you. But if we really want to enter into koinonia with God, we need to do what Paul did in Philippians 3.10, where we say, God, I'm willing to share in your suffering. Do you hear what I just said? I am willing to share in your suffering. I am willing to take on the things that are heavy on your heart because I don't want just a superficial relationship with you. Now, let's just ask ourselves right now. Let's just get brass tacks with this. What kind of relationship do you genuinely desire with God? Do you genuinely desire intimacy with God? Because intimacy with God, intimacy with God is more than just us feeling good about how much God loves us. Intimacy with God is mutual. Where we say, God, I want to be as equally concerned about the things that are driving your heart. And I want to enter into those things. How many of us, and guys, none of this, none of this please, none of this is condemning. It's not. But how many of us, when something like a Charlottesville happens? Or how many of us, when a, when a Muslim mosque gets destroyed? How many of us enter into Koinonia and we say, God, your heart is weeping over people, even if those people are on the other side of the aisle. Now, this might be completely counterintuitive to us, but God, the heart of the Father is, is, is broken. It is broken by the transgender. It is broken by those of different sexual orientation than, than fits in our boxes. It's broken when his people in the name of his son say that one race is superior to others. That absolutely shatters the heart of the father. And we can either enter into that pain with him. This is what lament is all about. So I've had people kind of give me a little kickback and say, well, you know, in, in the new covenant and in the, everything's victory, everything's victory. Listen, the Christian life is not all victory. I'm just, I'm sorry to break that to you. The Christian life is not all victory. Now, we have victory from what Jesus did in the cross and the resurrection. But there is pain in this world. And if we're going to treat people's suffering so tritely in the name of, well, you should just be victorious. You're just victorious. Just be victorious. We're totally overlooking the fact that people are hurting. And, and here's, what God is, here's what God did. God didn't come to people and preach victory at them. I mean, let's just look at how God handled this. Now, he purchased victory, yes, but he purchased victory by identification. This is what the incarnation is all about. The incarnation is, I'm going to end, I'm going to koinonia with your suffering. I am not going to address your suffering outside of your suffering. I'm going to enter into your suffering. And I'm going to feel what you feel so that I can rightly address the things that you're walking through. Our, our high priest, Hebrews says... Our high priest, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with every single thing we've experienced as humans. Rather, we have a high priest 
That was touched with every infirmity of the human experience. He knows what it means to be mocked and ridiculed and rejected. He knows disappointment. He knows temptation. And he says, in the midst of this, I am going to koinonia with you and share in the human reality and redeem that reality for you. That's what koinonia is. I'm telling you, friends, today, when someone is hurting, the last thing they need is a trite scripture quotation from you. They don't need that. I'm not saying that they don't need the scriptures. I'm saying first, enter into solidarity with the reality that they are walking through. And then from that place of relational credibility and authentic compassion, enter the life and the hope of the gospel. Do you hear what I'm saying today? I'm reading a book for a preaching blog of, of, of preachers around the nation that I'm connected to. And it's based out of a pretty well-known theological seminary here in the nation and and what they do is they send out a provocative preaching book and then and then we as a group of senior pastors interact around that text together and I'm going to share some of this with you guys and in the weeks and the months to come I know I've not really come out and and said a lot about Charlottesville because I'm just I'm allowing God to do something deep inside of me as it relates to this issue in our nation and I don't want to just give trite statements I don't want to just give you know, digi- you know digital sound bites and social media sound bites Th- this is a very real issue guys so I'm reading this book and it's called Who Lynched Willie Earl it's an incredible book thus far and it's all about how to preach in a way that confronts racism and it's written by a white pastor who grew up in South Carolina and and he, and he actually references one of the only messages that came out in his small town of Carolina after a lynching. And he walks through the entire process of how this pastor generated this message, all of the persecution that he experienced in it. And then it's, a, it's an appeal, particularly to people not of color, to enter into koinonia with those who are experiencing life in America in a different way. Their story's different. And our natural reaction is defensiveness and our natural reaction is justification. Our natural reaction is to explain things away. And really what we need to do is we need to be quiet. And we need to ask God for the grace of koinonia. Not in a a way that continues to perpetuate a problem. But koinonia in such a way that we incarnate ourselves into a deeper reality. And we invite hope and redemption into that as one who identifies. And I'm not saying that I know how to do that. I'm not saying I've got all the answers. But I'm saying the church is primed to enter into koinonia with the poor. The church is primed to enter into koinonia with a single mother. The church is primed to enter into koinonia with the refugee, the alien, the foreigner, the immigrant. The church is primed to enter into koinonia with the transgender person struggling. I had somebody ask me this a couple weeks ago. And, and, and don't, don't you guys get all crazy and try, try to start pegging me, all right? Don't, don't, be, don't be pegging me on stuff. But here's what they said. They said, listen, I know this is, is going to require a deeper conversation, but they said, tell me about your thoughts on transgenderism. 
Now, I typically don't like to give any thoughts until I've done some really good thought and study and, and, and really come forward with this with a biblical perspective. But here's what I know. I know that this is a very deep, human, personal thing. And where we get into trouble is we want to take deep, human, personal things and we want to just, you know, objectify them with truth. Do you, are, you, are, you, are you hearing what I'm saying today? When we start coming at people and we start ignoring their pain and ignoring their confusion and ignoring their reality and just throwing Bibles at them, it's the, it's the reason why we ostracize ourselves from the culture. Okay? This is, this, this, this is high time for the church to enter into koinonia, not just with each other, but to enter into a type of koinonia with the struggle and the pain of the people around us and earn the right and earn the right. It's amazing how many times Jesus was around suffering, struggling sinners, and he never preached a message out them. He didn't preach a message out them. Now, I'm not saying that the gospel is, is not the hope of you. I am not saying that. Do not hear me say that people don't need us to preach the gospel to them. What I'm saying is our methodology must change. It must become more human. It must become more human. And then until you're willing to experience and identify yourself with the pain of someone else's story, understanding that some people's pain we will never be able to identify with. And why don't we just start with that level of authenticity? I will never understand the amount of pain that you've walked through. I was not victimized the way that you were victimized when you were a child by people that you trusted in religious authority. And I am deeply sorry for that. And I hurt and I weep with you because, guys, listen, God hurts and God weeps with those people that are struggling with their sexual orientation by people, pastors and bishops and priests and fathers and uncles that they were victimized and abused by. And that's just the God-level truth to that. God's, gonna, God's doing something. He's teaching us. He's teaching us. He's teaching us. Koinonia. He's teaching us what it means to live in authentic community. He's teaching us to submit our need to be right so that over the long haul, love can prevail. And I'm not talking about a cultural love. I'm talking about the love that laid its life down to redeem all of humanity. So when I say koinonia, here's what I mean. I mean koinonia that shares each other's mission, and we see this in Philippians 1, a koinonia that shares in each other's sufferings, and a koinonia that shares with sacrifice, and that's what Dan preached on in finances. You know, when we give our finances, we're giving our finances not so that we can be the richest person on the block with the laws of giving and receiving. We give our finances because we are participating in a spiritual principle called koinonia that says, God, this is my family and this is my community and I'm entering into a shared life and a shared relationship with this people. Their mission will become my mission. Their God will become my God. Their people will become my people. And I'm entering into that. And I'm willing to become an answer to someone else's need. That's koinonia. The mutuality of shared life in Christ. All right, so you want to be a good friend? Learn koinonia. Learn how to share. And this is not this is not to put a burden on anybody in this room. This only happens by the grace of God. Jonathan, come on up. This only happens by the grace of Jesus. It's not something that just changes overnight. So sorry, sorry to get all cultural and controversial on all of you guys but then I'm not because this is where God is taking the church 
And honestly, 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 if the church would have responded to this 50 years ago, if the church would have responded to this, instead of assuming that, you know, political, political entities and presidents would, would, you know, do the work of the church for us, if we would have responded this way with this level of humanity, with this level of solidarity with the struggling and the oppressed, I'm telling you, we, we, we'd, be, we'd be in a different place today. So let's stand to our feet. And let's pray for grace as we come to the table, which is a physical picture of the grace of God. encourage you to ask God for opportunities to sit and weep with someone. I want to encourage you to ask God, Lord, give me an opportunity to sit and weep with someone in this next season. I tell you, over the past two years, one of the greatest experiences of my pastoral journey and my own spirituality has been the discipline of sitting. Sitting with someone else in their suffering and weeping together with them. And I want you to pray that. Ask the Lord, God, put me in the path of someone who's going through such a difficult season that I can be present and that I can weep with them. Father, today as we come to the table, we thank you that you wept with us. That you wrestled and you labored and you struggled and you fought. Jesus, that you became a human. Jesus, thank you for entering into koinonia with us, that you participated in humanity by becoming humanity. Jesus, thank you that that you know exactly what we're going through. Every temptation, every, every struggle, every sin, every thought, every feeling, every burden. And you take all of those on yourself. And Father, today I pray grace on my friends. And Lord, as we come to the table today, we pray by the grace of our God that you would help us in this journey of greater care through affection and thoughtfulness, through greater prayer and our frequency and our vulnerability. And God, that you would help us to share our lives in Christ together. Empower us in these things, we pray. Friends, come to the table.